This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Speaker, which I did introduce for our uh, mobile consult service panel, but I will briefly introduce Dr. Ely again. Uh, she is a psychiatrist extraordinaire from UCSF and part of our mobile service uh, uh, consult team. And um, Dr. Ely, where are you here somewhere? Here you are. Uh, currently the director of the Community Consultation Program in the Division of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry at UCSF and the interim medical director of the Division of Infant, Child, and Adolescent Psychiatry at San Francisco General Hospital. And today she is going to talk to us, it's a, it's a long title here, but it's Psychopharmacology for Anxiety and Stress-Related Behavioral Dysregulation in Neurodevelopmental Disorders. Dr. Ely, thank you. Thank you. Well, thank you for having me again and for that uh, introduction. And um, yes, the title is long because um, I I wanted to be sure that everyone was clear (laughs) about what it is that we're going to be talking about. And uh, that it is a mouthful, but it does kind of uh, encapsulate um, the the extent to which um, these disorders um, take up uh, a, a lot of time and um, and space in terms of our patients and our families and the people who take care of them. Anxiety disorders um, are are really important, especially when we include stress-related disorders. And um, I'll go through um, you know, how we're distinguishing those momentarily. So uh, I still don't have anything to disclose. And so in terms of our overview, um, what's, I think, the most important uh, piece to this, uh, this presentation might be is that anxiety symptoms um, as well as fear responses often go unrecognized. Um, these are internal states, and uh, often when uh, individuals finally come to clinical attention, it's because these symptoms have gotten to be quite severe. Um, and when we talk about internal states, um, we, we use that term to distinguish from externalizing behaviors, so things that we typically think about when we are thinking about um, outbursts or tantrums or, or dysregulated behavior. And so uh, the issues are, are complicated in that, again, these symptoms are internal. And so um, clinicians tend to be unaccustomed to Um, even considering these symptoms in the setting of neurodevelopmental disorders. Um, Again, they're not obvious, and so they tend uh, to go unrecognized. And then when and if they are recognized, then we are also facing this issue of diagnostic overshadowing, which means um, these symptoms basically get attributed to the neurodevelopmental disorder. They're not seen as something different or separate from the neurodevelopmental disorder. And then um, 
even more important, I think, than this, this clarification of the symptoms uh, is the idea that when these symptoms go unrecognized, um, they, they cause a great deal of suffering. And um, related to that suffering is um, morbidity that, that is unnecessary because these symptoms can be treated. And hence the third point, um, effective treatment does exist. And so that will be the focus of uh, my presentation today. Um, I wanted to, to highlight the fact that uh, even though my title <laughs> um, is focused on the, the pharmacologic interventions. Um, I also want to highlight the fact that there are non-pharmacologic interventions, and um, I'll actually touch on a few of those toward the end of my presentation. So the learning objectives that I included here are um, pretty concrete. I acknowledge that. Uh, so it's, it's about numbers. But um, more importantly, I think, if, instead of focusing on the, um, the concrete learning objectives, if we think about um, the more abstract idea that um, in neurodevelopmental disorders, um, there, there often is a lot of anxiety. Um, some of our local experts here at UCSF and Stanford and Davis suggest that um, anxiety is, is basically part of the, the diathesis, at, at least in terms of um, autism spectrum disorders, and um, that we, we might even think about um, some of the symptoms of autism as being on the spectrum of anxiety disorders. Um, again, this is, this is personal communication, this is their opinion, uh, but I thought it was an interesting point uh, that I thought I, I should transmit to this audience as well. So that's, that's the more um, abstract objective, that um, anxiety disorders and symptoms are quite prevalent, and uh, it's really important to um, be able to identify them and then uh, treat them. So um, I've been talking around anxiety symptoms, and so here I am actually going to uh, go into more detail. So as I uh, mentioned just a moment ago, um, they are prom they're considered prominent features of autism spectrum disorders um, and likely uh, neurodevelopmental disorders writ large as well. And um, Many studies have suggested that uh, anxiety disorder, not just symptoms, but a comorbid anxiety disorder um, is present in roughly 40% of individuals uh, with autism spectrum disorders. And uh, we consider them separate disorders because the anxiety symptoms, not the autism symptoms, but the anxiety symptoms are the ones that interfere with daily functioning and that cause impairment or distress. And these, these symptoms, these, these distressing or interfering symptoms, um, include a number of um, items on this list. So um, the need for perfectionism, for, for doing things just so, and not tolerating uh, things that are not perfect, things that are not lined up the way um, they have them, or things that um, are, are suddenly in a different place from where they were left. Um, additionally, there's the reassurance seeking. That's less um, distressing for the, the patient or, the, or the, um, the subject, and perhaps more an issue for the person caring for uh, the individual. 
Um, then there are issues around perseveration um, as well as rumination. So perseveration is, you know, we can think of it as more of the behavioral issues, doing things over and over again or wanting to do things over and over again. Rumination is more of the, the thinking version of perseveration. And then um, resistance to change. So um, people think about resistance to change as, as something um, quintessentially autistic, um, but for, for kids who are anxious, um, not having change is actually very um, anxiety-binding. It, it helps to mitigate anxiety symptoms. Um, so that's, that's why these uh, symptoms sound very similar. Um, the idea of change is very anxiety-provoking um, for lots of kids. Um, and then particularly in the setting of um, autism spectrum disorders. And um, I just wanted to describe a representative anxiety disorder. This is what um, comes to clinical attention a lot, um, and those are specific phobias. So, um, and again, this is just one of the many anxiety disorders that exist, but it's one that um, we, we often... Um, ask to, to intervene about. So um, the definition of a specific phobia is a fear um, and sometimes an anxiety that's triggered by a singular event, um, a situation, an object, um, and it often develops after a traumatic event. So um, kids who are afraid of dogs have often had um, an encounter with a dog that was very um, distressing or frightening, and that event is not necessarily remembered. Um, nor is it necessarily in the, um, the caregiver's awareness, right? So the, the child may have had an encounter with a dog that the caregiver um, didn't know about, and so this dog phobia seems to come out of nowhere, but, um, but in reality it, it could represent um, a traumatic experience with a dog that um, the caregiver was not aware of. And um, there are thought to be temperamental risk factors associated with the development of specific phobia. Um, so uh, kids who tend to be more inhibited, um, more shy, um, seem to be at greater risk for specific phobia. So again, this is just one uh, representative anxiety disorder. There are others, such as generalized anxiety disorder, um, but I, I chose this one as the representative, uh, again, because it, it presents so, uh, so commonly in our population. So then I also want to um, focus a little bit on trauma and stress-related disorders. I, I was glad that so many of our speakers today um, have emphasized trauma um, because it is, it is so important um, in, in every kid that, that we encounter, every individual that we encounter. We just don't think about it often enough. Um, and in my clinical experience, um, we, we don't pay enough attention to trauma. And again, not just the trauma of a singular event, um, a natural disaster or the death of a parent, um, but those, those um, what we would consider little traumas, the, the adverse childhood experiences, those, those traumas that add up, um, and the cumulative effect is very traumatic um, and uh, is, is, they have a significant impact um, 
during development. And so um, I'm not talking necessarily about what we classically would call PTSD, but I'm, I'm focusing more on um, what uh, child psychiatrists tend to think about, which is the developmental trauma disorder. Um, and again, in this situation, in, in this disorder, we're talking about stressors or trauma um, that can be of many forms. Um, and I want to highlight that neglect is actually considered the most traumatic trauma, um, at least in, in terms of the experts in the field. Um, and we've, we uh, today have spoke, spoken about adverse childhood experiences, or ACEs, um, and uh, there are several. And, you know, one of these things is, is bad enough, one of the things uh, listed here, like um, abuse of all sorts, um, and witnessing domestic violence, incarceration, um, again, the issue of neglect. But um, you, you have a series of these stressors, uh, and they can add up to uh, significant um, impairment, not just psychologically, but physiologically as well. Um, and they can lead to uh, a number of problematic consequences that, um, that manifest in terms of behaviors in our patients. Uh, so I, I just want to take a few minutes and, and talk about the stress reaction, again, because I would assert to this audience that um, we, we don't recognize this often enough, and um, that we, I think we need to think about it more. So I, I wanted to take a few minutes and, and highlight this and um, talk about the stress reaction in response to fear, and that humans have a, a stress reaction. Um, when we tend to think about fight or flight, um, this is what tends to come to mind, right? We, we recognize that this is um, a stress reaction, a stress response, a fear response. Um, and so this we're able to recognize, but it's important to remember that, that humans have a stress response too. Um, it may not be as obvious, and sometimes actually it is, um, but you know, humans will have dilated pupils, they'll have increased heart rate, increased respiration rate. Um, they may not hiss, uh, sometimes they do. Um, I've, I've had my share of kids in my office hissing, um, and they're definitely communicating loud and clear that um, they, they are having a stress reaction. Um, and you know, just because I'm showing pictures of critters, um, it is not meant at all to minimize the significance of a stress response in a human. Um, you know, I very much appreciate that the stress response is a very strong response, just that um, we tend not to think about it when we think about our human patients. And I'd also like to point out that you know, there's a reason that we have a stress response. Um, it's actually adaptive to feel fear. Um, fear is a normal response to threat. It's what keeps us alive. Um, this idea of fight or flight or freeze, um, we don't think about the freezing as much, um, it supports our survival. There is a reason that this still exists, um, that we, we still um, have this instinct. Um, so it's, it's actually a good thing to have a stress response in terms of things that keep us alive. But there's also the maladaptive consequences of the stress response. And, and this is where I'm going with this point, that um, 
you know, even though a stress response, stress response can be healthy, um, there is a continuum. And um, on, on the other end of the continuum, we are talking about a pathologic state. And um, that the pathology um, can be manifest in different ways. Um, and whether there's you know, an individual with a neurodevelopmental disability or not, um, the, the distress that the fear response generates um, can have a significant impact on functioning, whether it's social functioning or academic functioning. Um, there is distress and a resulting impairment. And um, the significance of considering this during development is that um, this stress response, the pathologic stress response, um, will have an impact on development in that it will um, prevent or, or limit appropriate adaptive behavior. Um, and this is what we um, are conceptualizing in this term, toxic stress. Um, additional features are the physiologic impact. I'm not going to go into those um, today. But um, when you hear about toxic stress, this, this is what we're referring to. All right, so with, with that background about anxiety and stress, um, I'll shift now into what we can do about it. So not surprisingly, the, the nature of the distress or the dysfunction will um, influence our treatment approach. And um, there are quite a number of interventions. Um, I talked about the, um, the pharmacologic and non-pharmacologic. Um, non-pharmacologic interventions include psychosocial support, um, somatic interventions like neurofeedback or biofeedback, um, and psychotherapy as well, as, in addition to behavioral therapy. And so I will um, talk briefly about the, the latter two treatment approaches. So when we think about pharmacotherapy, um, we can classify um, our options into three major classes, the serotonergic agents, adrenergic agents, and neuroleptics. So serotonergic agents um, you're probably most familiar with. These are things like fluoxetine or Prozac, sertraline or Zoloft. Um, and mirtazapine, or Remeron, and venlafaxine, which is Effexor. So these are the, the medications that um, affect um, the levels of serotonin in the synapse. Then there are specific adrenergic agents. I particularly like the adrenergic agents because these are the things that actually target the stress response proper. So the circuitry that underlies our fight-or-flight reaction. Um, and there are a, a number of these agents as well. Um, and I'll talk about uh, clonidine and guanfacine. These are things that can be um, scheduled on a daily basis. Um, Propranolol is your basic beta blocker. And um, it can be actually a very effective as-needed medication. Um, and it can also be scheduled as well. Uh, Prazosin we use uh, when we are concerned about kids having nightmares. And then um, the neuroleptics, uh, they're otherwise known as the antipsychotic agents. Um, and these uh, are more for um, behavioral management, so it doesn't specifically target anxiety, but it helps to manage um, the behavioral outbursts associated with um, a stress response. 
So we'll go into a little more detail. Um, the SSRIs, so selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, do what the name suggests, block the reuptake of serotonin. So um, when serotonin is released into the synapse, the way that um, you stop that signal is to clear the synapse of serotonin. And you do that by taking the serotonin back into this, the presynaptic terminal that released it in the first place. These medications block that process. So the serotonin that was released just hangs around longer, and so it can act on um, the the receptor on the receiving end of the synapse. And um, these medications are helpful when, when we treat anxiety in um, the setting of polypharmacy, so when there are other medications on board, and um, individuals with neurodevelopmental disorders, in, in our experience, um, with CART and with TAP. Um, we often see individuals who are on a slew of medications, whether appropriately or not. Um, that's the reality. And um, we need to think about an intervention, a pharmacologic intervention, that doesn't have um, problematic drug-drug interactions, and serotonin um, uh, serotonin reuptake inhibitors uh, are such medications. And I'm talking about all Polypharmacy. I'm not just talking about um, psychotropic polypharmacy. I'm talking about lots of polypharmacy. So every medical disorder that can be treated with a pharmacologic agent we need to take into account. Um, it's important to note that um, all SSRIs are not created equal. Um, in fact, there are generational shifts with SSRIs. Um, the older... Uh, flavors, um, fluoxetine or Prozac, paroxetine or Paxil, um, and fluvoxamine or Luvox, um, have, they tend to have more side effects and more drug-drug interactions, relatively speaking, um, compared to their, uh, their newer uh, generation. And so um, these, we use them more cautiously. Uh, they can be very effective. Um, but uh, we just need to keep in mind that um, they, they may have more drug interactions. Um, I have to tell you that as a child psychiatrist, we do not prescribe paroxetine. We do not prescribe Paxil for a lot of reasons. Um, uh, <laughs> but again, um, it, it has a lot to do with the fact that it's this older generation drug and it has um, way too many side effects for us to be comfortable with. Um, that being said, we can use side effects to our patient's advantage. So side effects aren't always bad. Um, and what that means is that if there's a medication that causes sedation, that's not necessarily a bad thing if anxiety is causing a person to have difficulty sleeping. So we harness that side effect. We um, schedule the medication for bedtime and you know we've we've managed to use that medication even more effectively than um, otherwise. So um, side effects aren't necessarily a bad thing. It's just important to know what they are so that you can use them to your advantage. Um, it's also important to to recognize um, <laughs> pharmacokinetics and pharmacodynamics. There's a reason that we have to learn these things, and. Um, some have shorter half-lives than others, which mean that we need to be careful in terms of dosing. Some drugs just aren't good for once daily dosing, and we need to think about dosing twice a day. Um, 
and we've talked around side effects. So I'll mention that um, the most prominent side effects uh, with SSRIs are related to GI disturbance. So lots of tummy aches. Um, some people get constipated. Some people get diarrhea. Um, headaches are also uh, a common complaint. And um, sexual dysfunction um, is, is also very prominent. And um, it, it can be a reason that people discontinue medication. Um, so it's important to think about that as well. Um, we also get weird side effects like increased sweating. Um, some people do become more agitated. Um, and uh, there is still the black box warning on antidepressants. Um, so there were some controversial findings about antidepressants antidepressants in general. Um, it started out with just SSRIs, and now it's, it's been broadened to include every single antidepressant. Um, there is a controversial finding that um, these medications were associated with increased um, suicidal thinking, not increased suicidal behavior or completed suicide, suicidal thought. Um, the studies were not done very well at all, but um, it did lead, the studies did lead to a black box warning, which means that um, when we prescribe these medications, we have to monitor uh, very closely and check in on our patients weekly as we're um, uh, increasing the dose or, or changing to a different medication. Um, and um, this point about QTC, it's... it's uh, a detail that I don't need to go into unless there are questions about it, and I'm happy to answer it, but um, in the interest of time, I'll move on. Um, other odd issues um, relate to uh, increased bleeding problems. So this is something that we need to think about for uh, girls who are prescribed this medication. So in case um, you know there's already uh, problematic issues around having periods, then we need to to be prepared for the possibility that um, these agents will uh, worsen flow, um, and that is because of the action on uh, platelet function. So there are other um, serotonergic agents that have dual uh, activity, so the serotonergic noradrenergic reuptake inhibitors. Um, those are duloxetine or Cymbalta and um, venlafaxine or Effexor. And these are really helpful when we're treating anxiety in the setting of pain. Um, and uh, the side effect profile is similar. Um, again, sweating, GI issues. Um, sometimes people can have uh, increases in their blood pressure. Um, not too significant, but um, if, if there is a bump in the blood pressure, then um, we need to, to track that. Um, these medications are um, more often associated with what's called discontinuation syndrome, which means that if um, individuals skip a few doses, then they're not going to be feeling so good. Um, and so it's really important that um, the, the daily dosing of these medications um, is consistent. Um, they've also been associated with... Um, seizures in, in high doses, so like in the setting of overdose. Mirtazapine, um, the, the alphabet soup here, is um, a noradrenergic-specific serotonergic antidepressant, um, and that basically means that it acts at um, 
a couple of different receptors, um, adrenergic receptors as well as serotonin receptors. So this doesn't increase the amount of serotonin in the synapse. This acts directly at serotonin receptors. Um, the, the bottom line is that it takes effect much more quickly. Um, so I happen to like this medication um, because its effects are... Um, are much more rapid in terms of onset, and um, it actually has a side effect profile that um, is often relevant for my patients, um, especially in terms of um, being sedating. Again, kids who have trouble sleeping um, do really well on this medication. It does cause weight gain, um, and it does it can cause metabolic syndrome. Um, and on very rare occasions, it can cause a decrease in white blood cells. So this medication actually requires um, lab work. So for individuals who don't tolerate lab draws, blood draws, this is probably not a good option. Um, so I just needed to point that out. So now we're shifting to medications that treat the stress response. We, the medications that we were discussing focused on treatment of anxiety. These uh, sets of medications target the stress response circuitry. So um, clonidine is um, an agent that works directly on um, the, the brain circuitry. It works centrally. So it actually targets the circuits that control the fight-or-flight response. Um, and again, the alphabet soup just suggests the designation of which type of adrenergic receptors are targeted. Um, it comes in immediate release formulations as well as extended release, and the immediate release um, requires at least three times a day dosing, and the reason for that is that there's a risk of rebound hypertension. So when we use this medication, it lowers the blood pressure, which is appropriate for addressing the stress response. But um, if you go too long without your next dose, then you can have a rebound, a spike in your blood pressure again. So it's, again, it's important to keep a steady level in the bloodstream. So missing doses is problematic. Um, which is why I prefer the other medication that works on the stress response circuitry, and, and that will be our next slide. Um, because it's now made in an extended release formulation, um, that is my go-to option for clonidine if I want to use clonidine. I often don't want to use clonidine just because its side effect profile um, is more problematic than its cousin, which is guanfacine. So guanfacine is basically the next generation of clonidine. Um, it's more selective than clonidine, which is good, has a better side effect profile, which is good, and it has a longer half-life, which is also good, relative to clonidine. Um, there is an extended release version. Um, it is used to treat ADHD. Um, this version of guanfacine is known as Intuniv, uh, but it, it is actually still effective in treating the stress response. And um, the benefit of using extended release versus immediate release are um, not great. Um, it's convenient once daily dosing, but in terms of efficacy, it doesn't really do much better than um, using regular guanfacine twice a day. Um, and uh, it's also more expensive. So uh, my tendency is to prescribe guanfacine and, um, and use it twice a day. So guanfacine immediate release, I should say. 
Oh, and it's important to um, to educate uh, patients and caregivers about the importance of staying hydrated with these medications. Again, these are medications that have been used um, to treat the to treat blood pressure or to lower blood pressure. Um, you don't want the blood pressure to go too low, so it's really important to stay hydrated. Um, so that helps with um, the the possible side effects related to low blood pressure. And it also helps with the side effects that are a little odd, and that's um, an experience of dryness, so drying out the GI tract, which causes constipation, and also drying out um, uh, eyes and and, uh, mouth as well. Um, Then there are these agents that have GABA in their name, Um, which is why I have GABAergic in quotation marks. They don't actually act at the GABA receptor. Um, And also in quotation marks is maybe. Um, So these these aren't our go-to options for treating anxiety, Um, but they can potentially be useful as augmenting agents. So when a medication has been started that is somewhat effective, but it's not doing enough, then we can add, think about adding these medications, uh, these GABAergic medications. Um, they actually work at voltage-gated calcium channels, so um, they act everywhere. Um, so you know, it's kind of a, a shotgun approach to um, modulating neuronal function. Um, so it, it has an impact on all sorts of um, neurotransmitters, glutamate, norepinephrine, substance P, um, so peptides in the brain. But what's nice about these um, medications is that um, they are renally excreted. They're not metabolized by the liver, um, and so there's minimal drug-drug interaction again. Um, and they happen to be FDA-approved for young uh, children, which is a big deal um, for uh, child psychiatrists in particular uh, because we uh, have to do a lot of off-label prescribing, which means that um, the FDA has approved medications for use in adults. They haven't bothered to test these medications in children. There just isn't a big enough market to motivate them to do that. So um, they don't bother to, to test these drugs in kids unless there's a market for it. Um, so we have to presume that um, you know, being safe in adults uh, means that there is a level of safety for use in kids, and so we, we just do very close monitoring of um, these medications that are not FDA-approved in kids. Fortunately, these, um, these GABAergics, gabapentin and pregabalin, are FDA-approved um, for use in kids. Um, so... Even though there are a few drug-drug interactions, there are some problematic side effects. Um, and uh, these include blurred vision, um, edema or um, swelling of, of the limbs, um, some uh, potential wobbliness um, or tremor. And uh, again, this is related to the fact that it's a shotgun approach. So every neuron in the brain is going to be affected by um, these agents. Um, so neurons, not just in the cortex, but in the cerebellum, everywhere in the brain is going to be affected by these drugs. And so not surprisingly, um, you know, we, we see symptoms that are related to like uh, cerebral dysfunction, uh, cerebellar dysfunction. Um, And then um, I've saved neuroleptics for last. 
um, in part, again, because they don't treat anxiety. Um, they treat behavioral dysregulation, um, in, mostly in the setting of stress response. The FDA has approved two medications for this purpose, um, and uh, especially in the setting of agitation in autism. Um, the, the two medications are risperidone or risperdal and aripiprazole or abilify. Um, and um, risperidol is associated with um, significant weight gain, aripiprazole not so much, but both can cause metabolic syndrome or changes in uh, blood sugar and uh, cholesterol levels. Um, so some, some individuals can't tolerate these medications. If that's the case, um, then quetiapine or Seroquel can be helpful. Um, not only does it um, treat behavioral dysregulation, it actually has anxiolytic properties or, or anxiety-reducing properties. Um, so it, it can be a, a backup agent if uh, Risperdal and Abilify aren't effective. Um, then we, we've talked about things to use. I want to highlight uh, medications that um, we should avoid using. Uh, those are the benzodiazepines and the antihistamines. Um, I say that we shouldn't use them because they actually don't treat anything. Um, they mask symptoms. Um, and uh, that approach... Uh, bothers me. I, I don't want to mask a situation. I want to treat a situation. Um, so philosophically, it's problematic to use these medications, um, but also functionally it's problematic because these medications are associated with a higher risk of delirium, um, disinhibition, um, and dependence. So the three Ds. Um, disinhibition basically means that you know, if you're trying to treat agitation, you actually can make agitation worse. Um, so um, instead of using those medications, these tend to be used on an as-needed basis. Um, and in, as an alternative, again, uh, propranolol and gabapentin um, are preferred. And I mentioned the, the importance of monitoring. Um, so when, when we use these medications, it's important to, um, to check on how they're having an impact on physiology. Uh, for some medications, it's more important than others. Um, for the serotonergic agents, um, it's good to check electrolytes at least once a year, if we can. Um, if we can't, um, then there are ways to, to monitor electrolyte levels clinically without you know, having to, to poke. Um, but if we are able to, to draw labs, then um, we, we should do so at least once a year. Um, as I mentioned, the SNRIs can elevate blood pressure, and so um, it's good if we can check uh, blood pressure at uh, clinic visits. And one of the SNRIs, duloxetine, can cause um, uh, liver enzyme changes, and so it's, uh, it's helpful to check um, liver function tests, LFTs, liver function tests, um, if you've prescribed duloxetine. And then again, I mentioned that mirtazapine can be very rarely associated with these drops in in white blood cells, so it's important to check uh, the CBC or the complete blood cell count. 
um, as well as glucose and cholesterol because of the um, metabolic syndrome. So again, I, I mentioned that the focus was on pharmacotherapy, but um, it's important to think about pharmacotherapy in, in the broader context of intervention. Um, and I, I want to, to emphasize the point that um, when, we're, when we're treating anxiety or treating a stress response, we shouldn't just use medications. Um, medications should be used if the other interventions uh, still have residual symptoms, that they're not, they're not taking care of every uh, component of the stress response or, or anxiety symptoms. Um, so it's important to, uh, to have these other interventions occurring simultaneously or to precede pharmacotherapy, I would say. Um, and so I wanted to focus on a specific type of psychotherapy, which is actually behavioral therapy. Um, it tends not to be seen as psychotherapy, but um, I, I will include it here. And the, the types of behavioral therapy that we, we tend to recommend are um, cognitive behavioral therapy, or CBT, exposure and response prevention, or ERP, and um, then relaxation techniques. So CBT has the most extensive evidence base of these behavioral therapies. Um, it tends to be problem-focused and goal-oriented um, and addresses cognitions, the C of CBT. And um, it, it tends to involve skill building, um, so it, it requires homework, um, and that the... Um, the sessions um, with the therapist are basically training sessions that include the expectation that uh, the individual will work on the homework between sessions um, and that the subsequent session reviews how that homework has gone and then adds on um, a subsequent skill. So uh, again, just in, in thinking about how um, CBT works. Uh, it's a very collaborative approach. It's, it's educational, um, and it's meant to be empowering. And um, the target population, I say here, it is in grade school. We need to think about what that means developmentally. So um, what we're talking about is individuals um, of a developmental age that is equivalent to being in grade school. There are um, some CBT protocols for younger kids, um, so, you know, the lower grades of elementary school. Um, coping cat is uh, one of the more common ones. It's a very popular one. Um, and then uh, facing your fears is a program developed in Canada, I believe, that um, targets um, older, you know, uh, developmentally um, older individuals. And CBT often involves ERP. Um, they, they can go hand in hand, especially for um, anxiety disorders like specific phobias. Uh, so just to uh, clarify what exposure and response prevention is, it's basically gradual desensitization. So um, again, hence, hence the term. So you expose to um, something that causes um, an aversive reaction um, very gradually with the goal of um, extinguishing the, um, the response. 
Um, most of the studies that have looked at ERP uh, have been done on OCD, um, which back in the day had been classified as an anxiety disorder. Um, it isn't anymore, <laughs> but it used to be. Um, and there are lots of uh, similarities to anxiety disorders, so this is why I'm including it here. Um, and these studies have looked, uh, have compared ERP to treatment as usual um, for anxiety management and have found that ERP is, is more effective. Um, so I mentioned phobias. And um, the problem with ERP is that when you start um, engaging in this intervention, um, you will likely uh, elicit an extinction burst. It, this is hard work. Um, so you are likely going to have um, uh, a greater reaction to the stimulus um, because you're trying to change a behavior. So you kind of have to batten down the hatches with this one. Um, but if you can get through the extinction burst, it's a very, very effective intervention. And then um, we talked about, or I mentioned, relaxation techniques as, as a form of intervention. Um, so things like uh, MBSR, mindfulness-based uh, stress reduction, guided imagery, biofeedback, um, and uh, even progressive muscle relaxation. These can be very helpful. Um, again, this, this requires a level of um, calm that, um, you know, if we're talking about a fight-or-flight situation, um, it's not the most, most effective intervention. So... I'm picking up on social cues. Um, so in summary, yeah, I, it, it says sum up. I'm summing. Um, so so uh, in summary, uh, anxiety disorders are quite prevalent. Um, there are a broad spectrum of symptoms. It's really, really important to think about them early so that we can intervene early. Um, and treatment is quite broad. It does include... Um, pharmacology as well as psychology. And thank you very much. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.